0: Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Interesting Hour. I am your host, Justin Kupanoff, and
1: with me, as always, is my good buddy, Devesh Verma. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. How's it going? I'm I'm all right, man. You know why? Why? Because this episode is brought to you by (laughs) Core Foundation. Core Foundation is a multimedia nonprofit. Check us out at cor-foundation.org. Like us, share, do things. Oh, there's a shirt there you can buy, and it really helps us out. So check it out.
0: Yeah. I like the fact that we are sponsored by Core makes you all right for the day.
1: I, uh, that's, thank you. It's interesting to me. I'm hear. glad you noticed that. It's just, the show's so fun and it's like just personal to me now. And yeah. <laughs> um, so this week we got Stu Krieger. He is a, he's known to be a Hollywood screenwriter. He is now an author, he releases uh, his first book called That One Cigarette, which you can buy off Amazon. Pretty good book. Yeah. And, uh, so Stu came in. Uh, he is actually a professor of mine back in, back when I was an undergrad, <laughs> and uh, he had a, a huge impact on me and my career and where I was going and where I went eventually, um, and just the fact that he's been around. A listers in Hollywood, like this guy, wrote the Land Before Time. For any of you old enough to remember that, or who's showing your kids that now, uh, that's he, the specific <laughs> reason
0: I'm here to talk about <laughs>
1: Land Before Time. Justin <laughs> made sure he got his little segment in with Land Before Time in this episode. <laughs> when we were planning this episode, Justin was telling me we need a whole section on the Land Before Time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he's just been around. He's just he's seen things. He's been across the circuit. He. This episode, like he gave advice, right? Like he's got a bunch
0: of great advice for people that want to break into the industry and, in, well, in any way, but specifically if you want to be a writer in any form or especially a screenwriter, he's got a ton of info. So. Yeah,
1: um, this is a really cool episode. It went longer than I anticipated, just because he was. The way he spoke. He's got and some stories. Man. He's got that's, stories. Yeah, it's good. He got stories. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And uh, yeah, let's start it.
0: One, two, three, four.
1: <laughs> Welcome back, guys. And today we got Stu Krieger. He is a Hollywood screenwriter, author, professor, father. His uh, previous works, you may know of, is The Lamp. He wrote The Lamp Before Time, Where the Boys Are, Monkey Trouble, The Parent Trap. Uh, He was co writer and creator, correct, of the Emmy Award winning miniseries, uh, A Year in the Life. Co creator. Co creator. There it is. Uh, He also wrote In the Army Now, A Troll in Central Park, Freaky Friday, Xenon, Girl of the 21st Century, all three movies, which. My Cousin's Love, I, I watched it with him growing up, Smart House, Phantom of the Megaplex, Going to the Mat, Cowbells, and most recently, he's involved in the short called Bad Timing. And most, most recently, he wrote a book called That One Cigarette. And also, besides Stu, uh, Justin's here as well. <laughs> I didn't write uh, nearly as many things as him, but I'm also here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Stu, welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for taking time. Absolutely. We're like in a new place today. We're at the Bad Idea Films uh, studio. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so if We're this sounds slowly weird. Slowly
0: making baby
1: steps, being <laughs> cooler and cooler. Yeah. If this sounds weird, blame our sound engineer. <laughs> Poor Josh. <laughs> Poor Josh. <laughs> Poor Josh. <laughs> so, Stu, what's up, man? How have you been? I've been great. Yeah. Uh, just a little background for everyone. I uh, met Stu actually in undergrad. He was a professor of mine uh, my last year in undergrad. Uh, had I known he was there the year prior, I would have tried to take his course then, but uh, uh, he's a very inspirational character. He's helped a lot of students uh, make their way, I'm sure, uh, both at USC and also at UC Riverside. What's your current title at Riverside now? I am a full professor, no longer department chair. I served my three years doing that and happily uh,
2: stepped away from the, any kind of bureaucratic side of things and just full-time professor.
1: You see that? He knows how to step down. <laughs> and you're also at, uh, you, you teach at the Stark program as well, correct? Yes, so one
2: yeah. class a year at the USC Peter Stark Producing Program, and that's a screenwriting class for the second-year students in the first semester of their final year.
1: Which college do you like better?
2: <laughs> I'm not answering that one on the air.
1: <laughs> I'm just going to say me because you met me over at UC Riverside. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so already hitting them with the hard questions, bro. Well, you know, I want to make this a full-time profession for me. Okay. So' <laughs> just right. hard hitting questions. All right. uh, starting with the early life. Stu, I want to talk about your childhood. I want to see I want to know what was your childhood like first of all, and when did you get introduced like just writing? I
2: was writing from a really early age. I grew up in Rochester, New York without anybody in the entertainment business in my family. So I often say that I'm one of those freaky kids who from a very early age would say to people, I'm someday going to go to Hollywood and write for the movies. And before that, when I was probably first, second, third grade, I had flaming bright red hair, and I used to take pictures out of the family photo album and send them to Walt Disney, and the envelopes literally were addressed, Walt Disney, Hollywood, California. And I would say on the back of the picture, look at me, I'm a really cute redhead, you should put me in some of your movies. (laughs) Is that a fact? It is absolutely a fact. (laughs) And years later, a couple of my childhood friends were out visiting me in L.A. after I'd been writing for several years, and they said, you know, it makes absolute perfect sense that you ended up writing. All these movies for the Disney Channel because that's where you were headed
0: early on. Man, wow. that, that's pretty funny. Like, uh, I feel like when you when when kids like feel like they want to be writers that uh, they don't automatically assume that. I want to write for movies, or maybe that's not a thing in their mind. But from an early age, did you think I want to write movies specifically, or
2: yeah? And part of what's so again the logical progression of my life has been that that first awakening really came from the Disney movies of my childhood, and so you know the original Parent Trap with Haley Mills that I ultimately got to do the actual sequel as opposed to the Lindsay Lohan remake. I did the Haley as an adult. And that was like as good of a dream job as it could possibly have been because the original Parent Trap was one of my favorite films growing up, and it was she was absolutely my first crush. And (laughs) so to go on and not only be able to do the movie with her, but we're still friends to this day. And we made that movie in 1986, but. When I'm in England or when she's here in the States, we always see each other and have dinner together. And so that's the kind of thing when, you, when, any, when I now think back of, you know, growing up in Rochester, New York, like I said, with no family in the business, no real connection to the industry, and have gotten to make a movie with my idol and remain friends.
1: It's like, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting pretty at that yeah. point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I met, uh, were these the same childhood friends at your premiere party, your launch party for your book?
2: Um, not the ones I was referring to earlier, but yes, uh, because they,
1: uh, yeah, I, I had some I had,
2: I had some good conversations with them at your party. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually they are two of six guys that whenever we possibly can, we get together all over the country. And the great thing that we've done, and I'm so happy that we did, is starting in 1979. Every time we're together, we take the same picture in the
1: same pose, and now we have <sighs> nine of them. No way! Yeah. I saw something like that online. Like another group of kids, like they did that progressively, like the same pose on yeah. like this. It's not you, yeah. is it? No, we're
2: okay. not we're okay. not the group online cuz actually what's funny is two different people sent me that and go, "Hey, look, they ripped you guys off." Yeah, Because theirs started much later than ours, but like I said, what's great about our series that now began in 1979 is it goes from big hair and mustaches to clean shave to gray
1: hair. To, you know, you really see the entire progression. <laughs> Have you guys made like a video montage of it yet? Nope. No? Nope. Who's who's keeping count of this? Like are you doing this? Of course. Oh my god. Yeah. All right. You need to, you actually need to like make it, get like an After Effects thing going on where it's like a thing. Yeah, time lapse, but morph the face. Each one of your guys' faces, like to see how you guys are aging. Like something like high end, you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Like yeah. throw a few thousand dollars into it. Yeah, I think probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that'd be completely trippy to see. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Um, so when you, so when you grew up and and you
0: realized that this was something you wanted to do, the, at that time, like you didn't really know anybody in the industry. You said, or no, like the, you were completely disconnected from the industry.
2: Yeah, and so it really, I mean, what was interesting is we made a family pilgrimage out here when I was twelve years old. And on that vacation, my father had a friend who got us into the back lot at Disney, and we actually got to tour the back lot, which was not a public tour at all. He, you know, did the hookup, and the sets for Mary Poppins were still up because they had just finished shooting no that, way. and we got to walk through, you know, the Hyde Park set on the soundstage at Disney, and the sets from Pollyanna and some of the other Swiss Family Robinson and you know oh, iconic movies so of cool. my childhood were there. And it really was one of those things where, again, just like somewhere deep in my soul, it was like, yeah, this is where I belong. This is what I'm supposed to do. And even on that trip, at the end of the trip, my dad called a family meeting down at the pool at the hotel we were staying in. He said, this is a really incredible place. Who wants to move here and who wants to go back to Rochester? And he and I voted to move at that point, and my mother and two brothers voted to go Home And he said, well, we've always been a democracy. We're going. And I said, you people do what you got to do. But all I'm telling you, as soon as I'm under my own power and have the ability to come back, this is where I'll be. (laughs) And I went to school in upstate New York. I graduated when I was 21 years old and moved a couple months later.
1: Was your family supportive of the writing career?
2: Yeah, and the really funny thing was my father finally got his wish because I was here for five years, and then my younger brother graduated college at Ithaca, and he moved out, and then shortly after that, my parents moved out. So... I have one older brother who's still hanging on to the, you know, he's the last bastion left in Rochester, and my parents lived here for 25 years, and they're both now passed, but I always said that I really thought that the move added 10 or 15 years, particularly to my dad's life, because he had had a lot of health issues early on, and then suddenly in California, he was much more active.
1: They were riding bikes. They were playing tennis. They were in the pool all the time. You know, Stu, so uh, I have family in New York City. I go there. I try to go there, like, once a year. I try. Um, I'm behind right now because of uh, a newborn, but <laughs> yeah. Um, but I love New York City for the few days that I'm there, and then I love even more coming back. I think I go to New York City just to make sure I love my home <laughs> here so much more. This is it's, it's slower. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I don't it it just, I mean
2: everything about the lifestyle works for me, and yeah. and I mean I like the weather, I like being yeah. outdoors, I like being able to be physical, and then having the industry here. But I remember my very first job in L.A. was at the lost now defunct Los Angeles Herald Examiner newspaper, and I was there, and one of my bosses was a native Southern Californian, and he was some. I did I might be the only person you will ever meet who lived in L.A. for three years without a car. And really? so, yeah, so I was, you know, <laughs> riding my bike and taking the buses and doing everything. But my friend John lived down in Seal Beach. And often on weekends, he would say, pack a bag and come home with me. And you can spend the weekend at the beach. And so he and his wife were kind of, they, he wasn't even very much older than I was. But they were like my adopted parents when I first moved to California. And I have this very vivid memory of being on the beach with them maybe six or seven months after I moved to L.A. And he just looked at me and went, yeah, you belong here. <laughs>
1: How old were you when you moved to L.A. again? 21.
0: 21. Yep. So so when you moved out here I'm assuming you upgraded your tactics from sending pictures of yourself to Walt Disney. There had to there had to have been something else you were doing to try to get. Uh, I really get all hope that. he didn't change.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say it, it was a pretty minor upgrade because the very first thing I did, because you know, as I said, I had absolutely no connections. I had no real knowledge of how the business worked. It wasn't, you know, when you get there, call Uncle Harry at Columbia and I'll hook you up. So it was kind of increment incrementally trying to figure out how it all worked. And so the very first thing I did is I sent resumes which is why it's only a minor upgrade yeah. from the pictures <laughs> to anything I could think of that was even tangentially related to the industry. So it was, you know, I applied to be a critter at Disneyland. And again, I would say, I'm sure you can make me Donald Duck or Chippendale. I'll fit in the costume. <laughs> you'll <laughs> dance. You'll yeah, dance. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And so I did that. I applied to be a page at NBC. I applied to be a tour guide at Universal. I applied to radio stations, TV stations. And then, you know, as I mentioned, the Herald was the first place that called me. But the thing that actually, and again, the whole path of the path is so interesting because the thing that kept me in L.A. was I had been here about three months. I was applying everywhere. And some of even like the restaurant jobs and stuff I was applying to, I wasn't getting because it was the overqualified thing again of, you know, we see you have a college degree. This is obviously just a way station. We're going to train you and then you're going to quit and go on to something else. And so I was here for three months and kind of running out of the funds I came with and you know, no job prospects percolating, and a friend of mine who had moved out, he came out with me knowing he was going back to the East Coast to go to grad school, but spend the summer in LA and have that experience, and he said, the only thing I want to do while I'm here is go be on the Joker's Wild Game Show. And he said, do you want to come with me? And I'm like, yeah, sure. i got nothing else to do. So I went with him. And as long as I was there, it was like, you know, I signed up, did the thing. We did it together. You do a personality test and a trivia test and all these steps along the way. And short story, I got on the show and he didn't. Oh, my goodness. And to this day, he's still mad about it. And every time, you know, we're together, he'll say, the only reason you got on is because you're red hair. That's why you got on. You look better on camera. It's like, dude, yeah,
1: whatever you need to believe. Uh, but the I wouldn't want news, to believe that, especially after your tactics. Like, Yeah, yeah that's exactly why I got
2: on the show. <laughs> yeah, and so the good news was I got on the show and the way the show was structured at the time, it changed shortly after, was that each time you won a game, the announcer would say, you know, you've now won $500. Will you risk what you've run to play again or do you want to retire with the money you got? And So I won the first game and I think I had like seven or $800 and had that moment of what do I do? I have no money. Won the second game. And then at the end of the third game, I think I was at somewhere around $3,500. And this is, you know, 1976. That's which was all the money in That's the world. Muscle. So it's
0: cumulative, mm-hmm. however many times you play yeah. and you're gambling the whole deal. Right, exactly. Deal.
2: Yeah. So if you go on again and lose, then you lose the whole 3500 And at that point, I said, you know what? I'm taking the money and running. Yeah. And the great thing was, I got the money. I got a 10 speed bicycle, which is how I got around LA for the first <laughs> two years without a car. And then, you know, that was really what kept me in L.A. And then shortly after that, I, and I really think it was like even the next week or two later, I got the call from the Herald-Examiner. And the great thing about that job was it was at a time when the newspaper was really moving towards its last legs. And so everybody there was either my age or old-timers that couldn't get jobs elsewhere, and everybody else in L.A. was at the L.A. Times. And so it was this dichotomy of really young people and really old people but some of the old people were true you know, Hearst family veterans who had been there forever and willing to kind of take young people under their wings. And so I started hanging out in the entertainment department. And I would say, you know, how'd you get your start? How do I do this? How do I do that? And it was so kind of present and annoying that eventually, because I was just a copy boy, which is basically running errands and everything. But you're but, networking hard.
0: Yeah. And yeah. any
2: spare moment I had, I was hanging around the entertainment department. So
0: you didn't get a job writing there. You, no. you were just uh, Yeah, a gopher, okay. basically. Okay. Was
2: a copy boy. And so, but by hanging around and pestering them, finally they started to let me write reviews and do celebrity interviews. And then the great thing was, you know, I was doing, I did an interview with Sally Struthers when she was still on All in the Family. I did an interview wow. with Suzanne Plachette when she was on The Newhart Show. And literally, I would ride my 10-speed bicycle to the interview. <laughs> I would have my sport coat stuffed in the basket of the bike, run to the bathroom at the restaurant. I was meeting them, you know, kind of wipe out my pants. Yeah, pull,
0: a, pull a Superman <laughs> and yeah. in the telephone yeah. booth. And then walk and in and go, hi, I'm from the Herald Examiner. <laughs> uh,
2: but then the other thing I would do is when the formal interview was over that I was doing for the paper, I would go, hey, if you have an extra 10 minutes, can I pick your brain for a few minutes? I'm trying to be a writer. I need some tips on how to do what, where. Smart. And the thing Very that was smart. incredible, and, and this really is a, an incredibly important lesson that I often share with my students, is most people were incredibly kind and generous and willing to take that time. And so, you know, what I quickly gleaned was that I needed to get an age, and here were some of the steps to trying to get an age, and here was a, some of the ways to keep writing. And especially at the time, there was this kind of mixed belief of whether it was better to write a spec script or of an existing show or an original script for, you know, a TV series or a film. So I was doing both. And then the other thing I did during my time at the Herald that was really helpful is I started taking UCLA extension classes and Again, the difference, you know, growing up in upstate New York versus taking classes at UCLA is in one of the very first classes I took there, Earl Hamner, who did the Waltons, was a guest, and Mary Tyler Moore and Grant Tinker came as guests, and Gary Marshall came as guests, wow. and the ironic thing was Gary ended up becoming a friend of mine because my wife was working, then-girlfriend, future wife, was working for him, and he even came to do a class at Riverside, and I forget if that was during your time or not. No, no,
1: we had uh, the Pushing Daisies writers come There you by. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, Yep. So, you know, all of that kind of figuring out how to network, figuring out how the industry worked, figuring out that I needed to get an agent. So even during my time at the Herald, I would come home every night and write on spec scripts and write on projects of my own and started sending things out and eventually made connections with an agent.
1: Wow. You know, I actually have another question down the line about, I might might as well ask right now. So like, if you're an actor getting into this industry, you want to you know, get your headshot done. You want to find an agent, someone to help you connect with casting directors, what have you. Go for rehearsals, that whole shabam. For writers, you already started talking about finding an agent. What, what did you discover? Since you, again, you didn't have someone to hold your hand through this, you had to figure yeah. this out yourself. What would you tell someone? I want to be a Hollywood screenwriter. I don't have any experience, I'm a blank slate, what do I do first?
2: Yeah, the very, very, very first thing is it really is an incredible business of connections and relationships. And so, you know, what you were asking about, actors versus writers, in any aspect of it, that's the first thing. And so it's figuring out where can I be, how can I possibly meet people, how can I start to make connections when I make those connections, how do I nurture those relationships, how would I make myself somebody people want to work with, And so, you know, the path for me was as I was trying to be a writer and the first producer I met with who was going to hire me to write a script for him was working on a low budget feature that was going to start shooting before our project. And so he said, you know, why don't you be a production assistant on the set just to get some set experience and kind of figure out what that's all about. And so when I was doing that, it was talking to everybody, asking them about their lives, their jobs, their path, their start. And then the other really, really important lesson that I can't stress enough to everybody is just be nice to everybody because who's going where, who's going to become what, you know, what job that they have today is going to turn into something. And so, you know, just to be somebody who show up early, stay late, make yourself useful, make yourself available, and be nice to people. And so, you know, one of the examples I was just telling a student the other night when he was asking me about the path was on the very first two movies I worked on, the script girl was Deborah Hill. And you know, script girl, some people don't think is a very important position on the job. Some people don't ever bother even to know the crew people's names. And Deborah was the script girl on those projects, but then went on to be the producer of The Fisher King and Adventures of Babysitting and Halloween and a bunch of other important movies. But because, you know, I had a relationship with her because I was nice to her later in my career, I could call her up and say, you know, I know you got this overall deal at Paramount. Can I come in and pitch a few things? And I could do that.
0: It seems so crazy that like one of the pieces of advice you're giving that seems like so obvious, just like. Don't be a dick to people. Don't be a dick. Like, seriously, like, and just, like, I've been on a few sets and things, you know, doing small things here and there, but it's, like, the amount of people, like, on those sets that are, like, just, you're, like, what's wrong with you? Like, do you want to sit down and talk about this? (laughs) Like, like some people have the worst attitudes, and it's, like, I don't get how, how how you get anywhere from that, or... You know, get any level of prominence like at all if you if that's if that's your attitude. I think that is an important part.
1: Absolutely, that's one of the reasons I like the entertainment industry. Uh, I had fun on set. I was like talking with crew, like this is fun, like we're just cracking jokes, but we're also making something. I was like, okay, I can get behind. Wait, I can wear jeans every day. I can (laughs) I can do this. This is something that's uh, reachable. It's attainable. Um, But talk about not being a dick. uh, There was one uh, set I was on. And uh, it was actually for uh, a USC uh, thesis for one of the grad students. Um, and uh, <laughs> the prop master, uh, I don't know what I did, but I was like, so how do you turn this thing on? It was just like this little necklace thing that you hit a button and there's a blinking light. Simple enough. I just asked, how do you turn it on? And he just like, look, and he just grabbed it. And he was like, I'll, I'll handle this. I was like, I think we're having two separate conversations. <laughs> but okay, I understand. I'm yeah. i let you do your thing. But yeah, no, sometimes it, it, it is stressful though. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But
2: the thing also is sometimes those careers do happen. Some people were, you know, they're just so, such a dick and you have no idea how they've gotten traction. But the, my experience also has been that those don't last long. So even, you know, for a while, if it's the talent or the work ethic or whatever it is that propels you, it doesn't last long. And, and, and the thing that I was, you know, firsthand pr- privy to was, Writers, crew people, everybody ends up on lists as much as actors do. And it's I, what I, again, always say to the students is it's much harder to get off those lists than to get on them. And, you know, I would, I would sit in meetings and sometimes it was casting sessions. Sometimes it was as a producer on projects where they were talking about other talent. And people would say, have you ever worked with so-and-so? And somebody says, yeah, I have. And he's incredibly talented and a nightmare to work with. And that's usually the end of the that's conversation. It.
0: That's it. That's that's crazy. I've talked to a couple other people in the industry in various, you know, roles, but it's like, yeah, there is like a blacklist of just like you know, they may have this position and they don't know how they got there, but then pretty soon nobody wants to work with them anymore. And it's just it's more trouble than it's worth, worth at yeah. some
1: point. I mean we you, you've seen me do this with some stuff we've done, like I won't hire somebody again. <laughs> Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's just like, no. But but that
2: goes back to what I said at the very beginning about, you know, because it's such a business of relationships and contacts and all Mm -hmm. of that, if you don't know how to nurture those, if you don't know how to make yourself somebody people want to be around, Mm -hmm. because it's exactly connected to what you were saying. Most people do this because they have a love for it and a passion for it and an enjoyment of it. But if you've got somebody that's going to come in and be the dark cloud over it, it's like,
1: no. This industry requires you to work like 12-hour days very easily, and especially if you you're in the developing stage like if you're a writer it's not 12 hours sometimes sometimes if inspiration hits you you're working longer yep. or at weird hours right Yep. so when you have to deal with the dick like, like that cloud like you were saying it's not fun like yeah no. it's uh People are people who are in this industry. They're doing these jobs, working these hours because this is fun for them. Like this stress is what they want to be stressful about.
2: Yeah, and you also have to have the perspective of there's 55 people right behind you that will be happy to step in and take your place. So it's not there's nobody. I have not met anybody, no matter what level, director, you know, A list stars that isn't replaceable. And again, I always say that the most (laughs) yeah, <laughs> you know, the the biggest example of it could possibly be is Valerie Har- Harper got fired from the Valerie Harper Show.
1: Yeah, you know, so it's like w-
2: when you think, you know, clearly they can't do it without me. My
1: name's in the title. I was going to say unless you have a deal with Marvel, and then Marvel will keep you around for many, many films. You know. Okay, so it's so like you said, like uh, you have to get an agent as well, like uh, and then anything yep. else? Do you have to have management as a screenwriter? Um, That whole phenomenon of managers for writers came around really, really late in my
2: career Mm -hmm. and it's the kind of thing now that I talk about if it's the right fit, if you really feel – I mean because a lot of people don't really understand the difference between the two Mm -hmm. and contractually management is not allowed to negotiate deals. So they can help you get jobs, they can connect you to produ- projects, they can connect you to production companies, but they cannot physically negotiate your deal for you. That's, That's what an the agent's, agent's job. They're
0: right. basically presenting you extra opportunities that your agent might not have access to?
2: Yeah, and a, and a great manager also works with material. So if, if there's the kind of connection where they work in many ways as an editor, would work on a book project where oh, they'll really? help you shape the material, they'll sit with you with drafts, they'll give you notes, they'll give you feedback. And so for both actors and writers, I always say if you meet somebody that you feel like they're really they have the potential to enhance what you're already doing, go for it. And then at some point, you know, none of these contracts are irrevocable. And if you work with somebody for a year or two and it's not working, then you know you have the ability to fire them and move on. But the agent's the guy you need to be able to actually negotiate your deals for you. So how does that
1: work when? Uh... You're a part of
2: the Guild, the Writers Guild.
1: Yeah. Uh, they have already set guidelines for how much you speak, like set fees or anything like that. How that? Or is that always just the agent per project, et cetera? No.
2: So what the Writers Guild does, and, oh. and it's a really important function of theirs, is they set minimums for projects. So mm-hmm. it's based a little bit on budget. It's a little bit on you know feature film versus independent film versus television project. And they have Guild minimums. So anybody that's a signatory to the Guild, you can't be paid less than that. But then ideally, and this is... It's not as true as it was when I was involved in it all, and that's the good news for me. Uh, but ideally, it used to be that you know every job you did, you got a little bit of a bump on your next project because you now had more credibility and more credits and more kind of traction. Mm-hmm. And so ideally, like when I did the 11 movies for the Disney Channel, each time there would be a little bit of a bump on the next project, but that's what the agent's capable of negotiating. And so... On several of the Disney Channel projects, I ended up on the latter ones becoming a producer. And the main reason for that was they had a ceiling of this is as high as we've ever paid a writer, we're not going above it because it's going to set a precedent we don't want to set.
1: Mm-hmm. So if
2: we make you a producer, we can give you a separate producing fee that's We'd commensurate. S- yeah, yeah, yeah. But we can then still say to the rest of our writers, that's the top we've ever paid for a writer, we're not going above it.
0: Sneaky. Yeah.
1: Sneaky. Well, no, you don't want to insult the other writers as well because right. they're working hard as well. And they can't help that Stu's kicking ass. So <laughs> <laughs> he has all this traction. Yeah, So,
2: but that's part of what the you know agent's job is then, to be able to negotiate those things, to be able to find where those perks were And then one of the other important things they do is then following up getting you paid because that's the other catch 22 of the industry is, you know, there were many, many times on my Disney Channel projects where contractually in a guild deal with all of the language and all of the lawyer work and all the, you know, everything that went into it, it would say your production bonus, which is usually the largest part of your fee, is due on the first day of principal photography. And... All the studios are good at this, but Disney was king. They were magical at how well they could do this, which would be every time, you know, first day of principal photography, you're expecting the production bonus, which I said is usually the biggest part of your fee for writing the script. And it would be, oh, I'm sorry, the accountant that cuts the checks is on vacation for three weeks. And then it would be, oh, and while he was on vacation, his sister died and, you know, whatever it was. They were incredible. And, and, And so I've said to many people that there were times when the movie was shot Edited, promoted, and on the air before I ever got my production bonus. Wow! And they kind of the bottom line of that was because they could. Yeah. And when you bitch and moan and complain, they would say, "Okay, you're not happy working here. Don't work." You have to work.
1: Yeah. yeah no. They, Disney. Uh, I was thankful to be working on a, a project for Disney, Disney Education, particularly uh, the American Presidents. So I worked on the first two DVDs and uh, whatever aired on the Disney Channel. But um, yeah, it, it was funny. They were. It was a different way of working, but that's why they're Disney. Uh, any minor change to the script that was already pre-approved from pre-production, I'm talking about a word or even an abbreviation of two words, um, needed approval. So when you're working on a completely like animated project like that, and you have to stop two days, like it was this inter- like we had to bake that into the budget and stuff like that. And yeah. it was again. They do that because they know what they're doing and they do everything right. It was just, oh, we have to pull the brakes on because usually, especially when you're doing like indie stuff and stuff like that, it's gorilla. It has to be run and gun. You yeah. have to go, you have to go, 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 go. No, when you get to that big level, you're like, uh, eh, stop. Let's just make sure this is right. And yeah, you know, but no, it was Disney's very interesting. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well put.
1: Yeah, Disney's interesting. Um, no, but I had I, I, I to mind it. It turned out to be a great product. So, and I was very happy to be able on that. <laughs>
0: I wanted to back up just for a second yep. because I think you were given some really good advice there. And I was just curious, from the time that you were at the newspaper to when you like uh, got your first agent, yep. like how long of a period was that? Uh, it was
2: about 18 months. And what happened for me, and again, this is one of those incredibly individual choices, but I was at the paper— Little, it was a little less than a year and a half. And what was starting to happen was because I was so annoying and starting to be able to do interviews and reviews and all the rest of it, it was becoming more and more of almost like a double full time job in the sense that any of the extracurricular stuff I was doing with the interviews and the going to see a screening to write the reviews, that was all after my time. It's you know, my eight hours a day as a copy boy. And so, what I was seeing happening was I was on this trajectory where I was succeeding, but I was succeeding at this thing that I didn't really want to become my career. And I kind of had this fear of, if I get too comfortable, then the rest of it's going to kind of fall by the wayside. And so after a year and a half, I made, and again, it was another like leap of faith plunge, but I quit the paper and started working temp jobs. And the idea with the temp jobs was I would work just enough to be able to cover my monthly nut. And, you know, I did, I, I mean, I always say I was like, a continuing episode of Lucy because I worked in a candy factory on the conveyor <laughs> belt. I worked in, in a dress factory. I, you know, whatever the temp agencies would send me out on, I would do. And so it would be sometimes like work for two weeks, then take two weeks off to write. And then funds are getting low, figure out what else you can do for a couple of weeks. And then sometimes it was a week where I was working for two days and then writing for three days. But I really felt like I know enough now in terms of the foundation of what it takes that I need to be t- producing material that I can continue to send out to agents. And I think this is an okay on-air story, but yeah. I was actually— Of course it is. Yeah, looking for, <laughs> looking for the next, like, how do I support myself? And I was always hanging around UCLA campus just because it was such a beautiful campus. And like I said, I was doing some of the um, night classes— mm-hmm. And also, when I was going to write, some days I would just go and sit on the campus on the quad, and you know, kind of soak up the atmosphere and write longhand and just enjoy being there. And so, I was reading the Daily Bruin one day while I was eating lunch on campus, and there was an advertisement for they were doing a research project that they were. It was an ongoing study, and they were in year four of a five-year study about. They were trying to find the medicinal effects of marijuana without the high of it, Mm -hmm. and so at the point where the study was now, they were looking for six volunteers to be quarantined for two weeks. And what we were getting every morning was oh, it was incredible. And (laughs) I like the biggest, you know, kind of draw for me at that point was one of the things to be able to qualify for the study is you had to do a they had to give you a complete physical. And again, you know, I was totally broke. I didn't have money to go to the doctor. It was like, okay. Hey, this I is perfect. To, yeah, and, I, and I get a free physical.
1: <laughs> you see, so, you're thinking outside of the box. Absolutely. Yeah,
2: <laughs> so I signed up for it and, and again, it was, you know, 50 or 60 applicants and you had to do a psych- psychiatric test, you had to do the physical, you had to do a bunch of different things. And so it was like 50 applicants for the six positions and I was one of the six people that got selected. And we called it the cuckoo's nest because it was me and five other guys and we were literally quarantined in UCLA Med Center and every morning, they would give us a packet of pills. And the pills were anywhere from straight THC to placebo. And then throughout the day, we had to go for these breathing tests because they had already proven in earlier years of the study that there was medicinal benefits for both asthma and glaucoma. Mm -hmm. And now they were trying to find the dose where, like I said, you could get the Medicinal effects without the high, mm-hmm. and so the pills were gradations anywhere from the placebo
0: to the straight THC. Did you have asthma at the time, or no. were they checking to see? Like, no, it was, it was all
2: about breathing, and so okay. we would do all these tests. And, and this is the danger of the, you know, the fallacy, I guess, of the study, which was, you know, we'd line up and we'd like medication time, gentlemen. You know, and we'd go in and get our pills, and then we would sit at breakfast. And like I said, there were six of us, and we'd look at each other. And somebody would go, <laughs> and it would be okay, well he clearly got the THC today. Yeah, a and then you, there. yeah, and then you'd look at somebody else that was going like, Oh damn, it. I got the placebo. <laughs> like I am so straight. This is not fun. And then like I said, the other people were, you know, great gradations in between, but the fallacy part of it was the two tests that we had to do several times throughout the day. One of them was a breathing test where you were in this like foam booth sized plexiglass box with a breathing tube that what? looked like the elephant man and you had to like test lung capacity and you know how that was graded. But when you were completely tripping, you're in the box going like, oh man. I'm like, yeah. And then the other what? thing was the glaucoma test was it would be like that puff of air in your eyeball yeah. test. But try to keep your head straight when you're, you know, yeah, on the yeah. straight yeah. TNC with your chin on it and the puff of air would be and you'd like to be flying out of seat. And they would go, sir, you need to hit, keep your head straight. And it's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm
1: um,
0: trying, man. I'm really, really trying hard here, man. I'm, I'm yeah. thinking
1: of the beginning of uh, Pineapple Express. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, you're, you're that you're the subject. Completely. <laughs> you <laughs> you just... Yeah,
0: so
2: that was, so the whole reason I'm telling this story is I had been sending scripts out and, and at the time, it was an actual physical paper list that the Writers Guild put out. And it was all the accredited agents in town, but they had it broken down into categories. And there was a category of willing to read from unproduced writers. So those, you know, obviously the top agencies weren't interested in that. And so it was smaller boutique agencies that would say, we're looking for new talent, we're willing to read, but still here was the submission process, here's how to do it. And so I had sent a bunch of scripts out and for the UCLA study, we were locked up, under, you know, sequestered for the two weeks because they're checking your blood and your blood pressure and doing all these things all throughout the day, every day for the two weeks. And they didn't want outside influences and stimulants and all the rest of it. So uh, I was locked up there, and my roommate called, and he said, "You got a letter from an agent, and it's not—it doesn't look like the rejection letter because it's a small package, not the big package. And <laughs> the big package was usually when they'd send that, your script that, back. That,
1: you, you had to clarify that because yeah. now it's just an email, right? Right.
2: Yeah, but the big package was they're sending your script back again. The small package was usually not that.
1: I'm surprised they even so, sent it back if they
0: didn't. Uh, yeah, didn't didn't accept you. Yep.
2: So he uh, said, you know, the small pack. Well, you had to put a self-addressed stamped envelope in it if it you wanted yeah, it back. Yeah. Totally. Okay, gotcha. You had to do that. Uh, so he said you know a small letter came should I open it for you and he opened it and it was an agent saying I read your material I liked it very much I'd like to meet with you I want to consider representing you and this was like day 3 of the 2 weeks we were locked up oh, no. and so I had to call from the phone booth at UCLA you know doing like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm here on vacation on the East Coast, but
0: I'll be, you know, on
2: the, I'll be back in about 10 days Can we meet them. When get
0: back? So and you so, didn't tell them you were in quarantine no,
1: doing no, drugs? I did okay. not. All right. I did not. I said, I'll
2: be back from my East Coast vacation. That might
1: have increased your stock. Who knows? Like, <laughs> oh, he has some life experience. There you there go. We go. So that
2: was how I got my first agent. And when I was wow. released, met with him, and he signed me. And,
1: and, and again, it was
2: the perfect segue in terms of he was a small boutique agency that was looking for new clients. And
1: he ended up getting me to the producer of the first produced film that I got to do. Before Up to that moment, yes. even, I'm sure after that moment, how mm. many hours in that day were you working? Did you have enough time for a social life?
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing that I feel like I've been very, very fortunate about is I'm an incredibly, like some people say, ridiculously Focused writer, mm-hmm. and so through ninety percent of my professional career, once screenwriting became my full-time profession, I would go into my office at home at nine thirty in the morning, work till one o'clock, go to lunch, be back at two o'clock, and work till five thirty. And I was always writing when I was doing that. It wasn't, you know, if I said I was in the office working, it wasn't because I was playing cards or solitaire on the computer. It was or literally daydreaming or anything. Yeah, no, I and so. One of the great things about that, in terms of just time management and product productivity, was even if I was working the temp jobs and stuff, I usually came home and wrote a couple hours a, a day. And then, like I said, you know, some weeks it was work two days
1: and write three days, but those three days I was writing. That's incredibly disciplined. Um, do you have any like systems uh, to help, motivate you to write every day, or just like oh 9:30 got to write, or like do you have? I don't know, a special item in your desk that helps you, like inspires you to write? Like Or would you your... steal any of those pills from that? <laughs> yeah. like to, like, what's going on? Like, w- like, what gets you to do that?
2: Yeah, you know what? It's so funny to me because it's a question I've been asked a lot over the years and particularly with students. And the disconnect for me is I don't understand because what I always say is, you know, when you're working, you get up in the morning, you put your clothes on. If you're going to an office, you put a suit on. If you're going to your fast food, you put your uniform on and you go and you get there. And I said... Once this was my profession, it was my job. So I just didn't give myself the leeway of, yeah, maybe today you can screw off and go to the beach for a couple hours. And then it's like, this is your job. It's how you're supporting yourself and ultimately my family. Go do your job. And so when people say, you know, you were so disciplined, you were so committed and all the rest of it, it's like, yeah, but you get up and go to your job. That was my job. And so I think a lot of it was just that, but I always really looked at it. This is my job. This is the way I'm planning to support my family. Go do it. And it would be the same thing if you had a friend who said, you know, two or three times a week I phone in sick because I'm just not feeling it. I'm just not Mm -hmm. in the mood to go, you know, to my office. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: and so I just, I think it was that, of really just not setting it up as an option. And it was like, if this is what you're doing, this is what your job is, go do it.
1: You know what's funny? uh, Even in undergrad, like, my first year, I took 12 units every, every quarter. Like, I was taking it easy. And I was getting, like, Bs and Cs and whatever. You know, I wasn't really focused, but as I... Like second year, third year, fourth year, especially fourth year when I met you, I was taking 25 units a quarter or around there. And my grades were like A's and B's. Like I was kicking complete ass, right? I mean, but it made me, I needed to be focused in the regards to, I just needed to fill my plate up with what I wanted to do. All my courses were film courses, except yeah. maybe one science course or something like that. But uh, once I started doing that, I realized, oh, I can start doing this. Like then this became really easy working the 12 hour days. Yeah. And like in time, like I remember, it was five years after I graduated from UC Riverside, and I was just like, "Where did that time go?" Like, but like I was, I was hustling. Like, there's a lot of work you had to do, and yeah, again, that's again, you're being passionate. But um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so did. So you, did you, when did you meet your wife, your girlfriend at that time? Because uh, there's some overlap, I think.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes when I'm telling these stories, it's like, are you sure you're not making this stuff up? But, uh, as I mentioned, the producer of the first film that I got to do was in pre-production on another film that he was the producer on, not directing. And he, that was the film that he said you should get some set experience and go work on that film. And that film was the classic motion picture that I'm sure you've all seen many, many times, Satan's Cheerleaders. Yeah. And the great thing about <laughs> Satan's Cheerleaders was that it was a filmmaker named Graydon Clark. And Graydon had this incredible foolproof formula. of It was still in the days when drive-ins and four, four-walling, if you know that term at all. Four-walling. Four-walling mm. was low-budget feature films, that what they would do is they would blast it out nationwide for a week or so and get enough theatrical exposure that then there was an afterlife on VHS and you know whatever gotcha. the format of the day was. But the whole idea was hit it quick, hit it fast, and get out, and then get your ancillary markets going and make your money. And mm. again, he would work on very low budgets, but his formula was everything he did was some like former movie stars who are now kind of in the twilight of their career and then young, nubile women and young men. And, you know, so to kind of get that, a huge demographic of across the board. And so he got the financing from the names and on Satan's Cheerleaders, John Carradine, you know, a phenomenal Academy Award nominated actor from all the way back to Grapes of Wrath was one of the character actors. And Yvonne Carlo, who had been Lily Munster on the Munsters, was in the Zane movie. Cheerleaders. <laughs> Satan's Cheerleaders? Satan's <laughs> Cheerleaders. Okay. And my... Now, wife of 37 years was one of Satan's Cheerleaders, and that's where we met. So we used to say when we were first dating that we wanted to get just famous enough that we could be on a talk show to say, of course we met on Satan's Cheerleaders. (laughs) But then the insane thing about that film is, like I said, incredibly low budget, played for a week, and then went to all the ancillary markets – and maybe, what would it have been, eight or ten years after the movie came out, and and it literally, with all of those movies, it was out for the week, and that was that, and nobody ever heard of them again. And then about eight or ten years later, the, when the whole punk scene was starting to happen, there was an article in Esquire magazine about explaining what the punk movement was, and it was talking about the leather and zippers and, you know, safety pins in their cheeks, and they listen to this kind of music, and they gather in church basements to watch cult films like Satan's Cheerleaders, <laughs> AC Green Day, yeah, 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 yeah. And and I'm sitting in my bed reading Esquire magazine, go wait, they just said Satan's Cheerleaders is now a cult film in the punk movement. <laughs>
0: that's good though, right? Oh, exactly. <laughs>
2: that's, like, that's <laughs> a
1: fist pump, right? Yeah, Oh, yeah, yeah. And
2: then several years later when I started teaching at Stark, my very first class, Doc Wyatt, who was the producer of ultimately after school of Napoleon Dynamite, mm. came into class one day and he goes, dude, look what I found. And he had the DVD of Satan's
1: cheerleader. So you know it lived on. That's great. That's, that's we, where we met. It was like, it's on DVD. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you betcha. That's funny, man. Uh what year was that when you started working on Scenes Cheerleaders? That was
2: 1976.
1: 76. Yep. You got, it, it's been a long time. You're, so right now, you primarily teach.
2: Yes. So yeah. actually, I'm going to correct the record because yeah. when I said that, I realized, mm. I think I said earlier, it was 76 when I moved. But I mm. moved in 73 okay. and then worked at the Herald in 74, 75 and then quit to start the film career.
1: Gotcha. Today, though, Yep. you wrote a book. Well, not today. Not today. <laughs> he wrote, he had wrote out today. You can buy. He's it a today really out. hard worker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. While we were talking, while we're, yeah. <laughs> uh, like if anyone hasn't figured out, Stu's multi multifaceted. He's he's multi talented. <laughs> yeah. um, I can see him with the pad of paper right now. Um, no. So, do you still write today? Other projects? Like, how often? What are you? Are you creating today? Or are you just primarily focused on teaching? Like, what's the this stage in your writing career? Yeah. What's going on?
2: Uh, kind of the transition and where the novel came from was the whole idea that when I made the full-time transition. So I started teaching at Stark in 2001. And this is another really great life lesson of the connections and relationships that we were talking about. That opportunity happened because there's an incredible human being named Larry Terman. Um, Larry's film career goes all the way back to producing The Graduate uh, when he was in his early 30s. And Larry was somebody in my film career that was always a mentor and supporter of mine as a writer. And he's the kind of guy that even when we weren't working on a project, he would call me up every six months or so and go, what are you working on? Why don't we have lunch? I want to check in see what you're doing.
1: He kept me close. Yeah, and he would yeah.
2: read stuff and give me feedback. And we had a couple of projects we developed together that ultimately didn't get made for various reasons. But like you said, you know, kept me close, stayed in touch. And then in 2001, that summer, he called me to lunch and he said, I've been at the Stark program for about five years now. And the PS to that... Was Larry is now 91 years old and still the dean of the Peter Stark program, and he's amazing. Um, But he called me to lunch and he said, even though it's a producing program, I want to add a writing class to the program. I think these guys need to learn about the language of writers, working with writers, the process of it. And in the process of doing that, I'm hoping I'll uncover some latent writers in the project that have always wanted to write and not had an outlet for it. And he said, you seem like a natural teacher to me. Would you want to teach that class? And so I said, absolutely. I only have one hesitation, that I live on the west side of L.A. And to get down to USC at 7.30 on a Monday night, I'd have to leave at 2 in the afternoon. And he said, well, they're grad students. They live all over the city. Why don't you just teach in your living room? And I said, I'm sorry, I can do what? And he said, teach in your living room. So since 2001 to last fall, I still teach that class every year in my living room. The students come to me. Wow.
1: Um, Wait, I, I almost asked you, we should just do this show at his house <laughs> I was about to ask him, I was like, I do no, no, let's take him out <laughs> there you go. Um, So
2: it, when I was first, then, you know, I was, so I was teaching there from 2001 for five years And I was at the point in my film and television career Where everything that you've ever heard about it being a bit of an ageist business Of, you know, at some point you're not the new kid in town anymore You're not the hot young flavor There's a turnover, they're always looking for who's the news gu- new guy, who's the hot guy um, all that was starting to happen, and it was happening in a way that a lot of the jobs I was going out for were just not that interesting to me. Kind of one of the signposts of maybe it's time to move on was I got offered the third direct-to-video sequel to a movie I had turned down the feature version oh, of really? originally. Yeah, I was like, okay, you know, I, I, you don't have to hit me in the head with a frying pan. I can, I can see the lines. Yeah, yeah, I can see where this is going. Um, And it was, a you know, kind of grappling with what do I do, what's next, what's the next chapter and having some struggles and having some tough days. And I came up from teaching my star class one night and my wife said to me, you are really happy when you're teaching. You have this energy and this bounce and this, you know, just enthusiasm that I haven't seen in a long time on the film and television side. Maybe you should be teaching more. And so I went and met with a friend who was teaching at Loyola at that point, started to pick his brain, started to get some advice. He said... Most teaching positions end up on the Chronicles of Higher Education. Go check out the website. And I went there and literally put in film and television writing positions and UC Riverside popped up. And it was looking for a film and television writing professor that has experience both as a teacher and in the industry. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's me.
1: (laughs) Uh, Two thumbs up. Hey, how's it going?
2: Yeah, and it was sort of, and again, I think this is another thing about goes back to the discipline and the focus and everything else you were asking about is I saw that posting and it was like, that's my job. I'm going to get that job. That's supposed to be my job. And when I first applied, Robin Russin, who was the head of the search committee, Great guy. contacted me and said, we got an avalanche of applications. We're definitely interested in you, but it's going to take us a while to weed through them. There's a lot of qualified candidates Hang in there and went through that entire process. And it ultimately was about a four and a half or five month process before they called and said, do you want the job? Um, and so... When I started at Riverside full time and was still doing the star class, I was also at that time the head writer and story editor on an animated show for Nickelodeon called Toot and Puddle, yeah. which was a great... <coughs> I highly recommend it to your son when he's of age. Uh, did I did I list that? I don't know if I listed yeah. that one, but yes. Uh, <laughs> so I was head writer and story editor on Toot and Puddle and teaching at both colleges, and suddenly I was doing you know 140 hours a week because as head writer and story editor, we did 26 episodes. I wrote nine of them. I was the story editor on all the rest, which meant every script had to pass through my typewriter. I had to give notes... To the writers, I was li- the liaison between the writers and the studio and doing all of that. And I had a night of, wait a minute, no, this <laughs> wasn't, you know, I was making the segue to teaching because I'm ready to slow down a little bit, I'm ready to focus on giving back and doing that. And so I kind of said, I really need to step away from actively pursuing the film and television stuff. And fortuitously, shortly after that, I got a call from my agent saying that he was stepping away to become a full-time manager, but there are other people at the agency he could introduce me to, and I said, you know what, this is perfect. This is a good segue. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I, I can step away. I don't want somebody sending me out on jobs that I have to turn down because I can't
1: do because of my... Or an agent that life. doesn't know you and how you work. Yeah, yeah. Th- there's that, that issue. Yeah, so it was really the
2: perfect, elegant way out. And then people would say... So you're not pursuing writing anymore. And it's like, no, I'm a writer. I'll always need to write. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of the book project came about because I had this kind of seed of an idea in the back of my head. And then I thought the great thing about writing a novel is it'll be done when it's done. It'll be as long as it is because the thing with all my film and television work was always, you know, it's a Disney Channel original movie. We need 90 pages and we need a Friday. (laughs) Or it's a pilot. We need sixty pages. We needed a week from
1: Friday, and you had to have so much stuff happening within one act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To and so with in.
2: the book, there was a great joy and liberation with because it's a counterfactual history novel. So there was a lot of research involved. I was able to hire two grad students because I had money in my hiring package at Riverside to be research assistants for me. So they worked for a summer and a half, doing a bunch of stuff. And I could really write when I could write. And so I kind of took the pressure off of if it never gets done, if it never gets published, who cares? Mm -hmm. You're a writer who enjoys writing. And so ultimately, because I was drafted to be department chair for three years, which we touched on in the (laughs) beginning, The book took seven years to finish, Mm -hmm. and then when it was finished, it took another year to find a publisher and get it published. So eight years from beginning to end.
0: So uh, I think Mm -hmm. you answered one of my questions that I had. Uh, You said this idea for um, uh, the book— it didn't start out as uh, a screenplay in your head or a novel in your head. This was just an idea you had for a story. Yeah. Okay. Because that's what I was going to ask. Like, um, it, was there ever a time where you like differentiated from your ideas? Like, okay, this is a screenplay. This is like a novel that I want to work on. So, the, just the idea comes first, obviously, when you're coming up with the idea, and then yeah.
2: And I was always a writer, and I think it's reflected in my career: produced credits versus all the stuff that didn't get produced. But I'm much more of a character-driven writer, and so it's like, who are the people and what is their story is always my place of departure as opposed to, I wasn't a big special effects guy, I wasn't a big, you know, it's robots from Mars, it's, you know, a bike messenger superhero. It was always much more about... Who are the people and what is their issue? What is their story? What's the thing they're trying to work out? And what was interesting, even like with the three Xenon movies, for me, it was much more about a kid living on the space station and what's that experience and how is your childhood different than a kid who grew up on Earth? And it was, it was much more, again, coming from who she was and what her experience was than it's all about the space day and the
1: mechanics and the pyrotechnics of being on the space station. That was when I I actually watched those movies with my cousin, and uh, what inspired you particularly to write the first movie for that? You know, Girl of Twenty First Century.
2: That was another really interesting of how things evolve and where they came from. It was based on a kids' book, and the kids' book was literally like a fifteen-page picture book. Mm-hmm. And it was called Xenon Girl of the 21st Century. She lived on the space station and she had a crush on a rock star named Protozoa. So, those were kind of the three things. Typical from the girl book. life, yeah. 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 And those were kind of the three things from the book that survived. Mm-hmm. But again, in terms of like knowing your audience, knowing who you're pitching to, doing your research, taking everything seriously, what I was told ultimately when I got the job to adapt the book is they said, we had about 20 writers that came in before you to pitch to the Disney Channel, how would you adapt this book as a Disney Channel original movie? And they said, 19 of the writers that came in before you said, it's 90210, meet Star Trek. And we are the Disney Channel, we don't do either of those things. And neither of those things would be appropriate to our network. And when I went in, I don't know if you guys are familiar with a very, very old and famous kids book called Eloise at the Plaza. Oh, yeah. But Eloise at the Plaza was a kid's picture book about a kid who lived at the Plaza Hotel and she had a nanny who was her guardian because her parents traveled all the time and the books were all about her adventures in the hotel and riding in the dumbwaiter and spying underneath the tables and meeting the famous people that came. And so I went in and I pitched it as it's Eloise at the Plaza on the space station. Hmm. And they went, that's what Disney Channel will make and that's why I got the job. And so again, you know, that idea of researching who you're going in to talk to, researching what they do. At that point, they had only made, I think, two other Disney Channel original movies, but I made sure I watched both of them before Mm -hmm. I went in to pitch them. And then kind of the incredible thing about nurturing those relationships and working, they had a party celebrating the first 50 Disney Channel movies because at the time that I was there, they were doing one a month. Mm -hmm. And so they were really firing them out, and they had a party celebrating the first 50 movies, and I had written 10 of them. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, you know, I, that was a pretty good track record It's a fifth of yeah. Hey, yeah. <laughs> so That's
1: so, pro status. Sorry, to, I, I had to ask that question because yep. of Xenon. But um, going back to current day, back to the book. Yep. Um So like Justin's saying, you had this idea brewing in your head for a while. It took eight years to make. Um, what? How did it turn out for you? Like you. I'm not talking yeah. about how everyone else is like reading in. Like they're telling you, oh, oh, this is great. Blah, blah, blah. How did you like it looking well, back? the greatest thing about it was... It was
2: the first time, and it really in some ways was the double-edged sword, good news, bad news, but it was the first time in my career where it's all on me.
1: Right. You know,
2: and there's nothing about the film or television industry that isn't collaborative. And so from the minute you're hired, there's producer input and there's studio input and, and then there's, there's more producers' material. input. Yeah. yeah. And then eventually <laughs> directors input and actor input and, and then more and, producers. And, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so there's never a time where you don't have to be adaptable and you don't have to be finding that fine line of you know kind of keeping your point of view intact at the same time of pleasing the people who are hiring you, because that's ultimately how things get made. Mm-hmm. And so with the book, because it was all on me. And And I was determined that before I send it out to publishers and stuff, it was going to be the book I wanted it to be. The onus of it, and and this was very true at the book launch party that you were at, it was that moment of, uh uh-oh, now it's going out in the world and there's nobody to hide behind. Whereas, you know, with the films and stuff, there was a couple that... A lot of things along the way changed my vision of the movie, and I would just be able to say, "Hey guys, uh, you I should guy. read my original draft." Or you know, you don't know how the studio messed with it. Or there was always some cover to hide There's underneath. There's
1: some producer dude. He kept yeah. doing some stuff. Yeah, completely. Do yeah.
2: Yeah, and so with the with the book, it was really like I have to take ownership of it. I have to be okay with this is the book I wanted. To, you know, the story I wanted to tell. And the really nice thing was the the kind of the most terrifying moment was I worked with two different editors and the first one is her title was an assessment editor and what assessment editors do is they read the project just giving you feedback on the overall manuscript so as opposed to you know once you get in with your line editor they're really going word by word line by line getting into the minutiae of it but the Assessment editors just let me read it and let you know how I reacted to the story or if things that didn't track or things that didn't make sense. And so she was really the first fully outside eyes, not related to me in any way, no relationship to me. And the day I gave it to her, it was like the thumping heart and like, yeah, oh, yeah, man. yeah. You know, again, I have nowhere to hide. And the nice thing with her feedback, she had some important critical things to say and some things that she felt were missing or could have been developed further. And all that was really helpful but the main kind of sigh of relief was she got what I was trying to do Mm -hmm. and the things she responded to and the things that she was positive about where she clearly understands what story I was trying to tell and, you know, kind of conversely now that it's out in the world and it's up on Amazon and it's got 43 or 44 reviews on Amazon and a couple of them are less positive than others. And, you know, one of the negative ones, it's like, dude, you so didn't get it. <laughs> and, yeah. and again, you don't want to do like, let me get on my bicycle and pedal around and correct bro, you. Bro, you
1: want to like, like, bro, <laughs> yeah. listen, yeah. read it again. Yeah, Let's talk.
2: Yeah, and, and, and so kind of. That ownership and that responsibility, I feel really good about it, and mm-hmm. I and I feel like, you know, most of the positive reviews and and both professional and personal reviews, both on Amazon and like I said, the professional reviews, most people get what I was trying to do, and have had a, a pretty positive and emotional response to it. So,
0: so you kind of answered one of the questions, another question I was going to ask, which is uh, wondering whether you read your own reviews on some of this stuff, because I know that some writers will. Th- they'll take it as uh, a negative to 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 what they're trying to do, or they'll they'll think like there are some writers that just do not want to read that. They stuff. don't want to take criti- yeah. criticism. Do you think that th- that writer should be reading their reviews, or do you think sometimes it can just be harmful to the process itself?
2: You know the difference between
0: a writer and like I've read interviews with particularly
2: stage actors who say they don't read their own reviews. With stage actors, I f- fully understand it because that process is still ongoing. And so you get reviews on opening night that undermine what you're doing and then how do you keep that equilibrium? How do you keep your confidence? And as a writer, you're done and the work is there. And, and so part of it for me in my professional film and television career, was, and, and again, this is an incredibly difficult learn skill and it's something that you have to work your way through and anybody that says, you know, I can read negative reviews and just be fine is lying to you. But for me, and, and it's the same thing interestingly enough now as a teacher because you get teaching evaluations, I do read them and I do take them really seriously because I think we should continue to learn and continue to grow. And you know, if, if your response to any kind of negative reviews, whether it's from students or critics, is just defensive and just negative, you're not growing. And so for me, and this is a story I told a lot in class, so I don't know if you ever heard it, but I said, you know, how I kind of learned the equilibrium of it and the reason I do yoga five days a week and, you know, other things to try to keep balance in my life is when I did True Confessions for the Disney Channel, which was the Shia LaBeouf as a handicapped kid movie that I was very proud of and Disney was really high on and excited about and they actually ran – um ads and variety touting it for a daytime Emmy and there was a lot of noise around it. And I was really feeling good about that movie. Mm-hmm. And what always happened when they were debuting was I would run down the morning of the debut, grab the L.A. Times, see if they reviewed the project, read the review, and then it had a great influence on how my day would go
1: yeah, it was like your pep talk like, yeah, ah, awesome. yeah. yeah. So,
2: so with True Confessions like I said feeling really good about the project thought Shia was amazing in it run down grab the LA Times at 6.30 in the morning pop it open and it's an awful review mm-hmm. didn't like the movie didn't like the writing didn't like just ripping it to shreds mm-hmm. And so then you go into that, you know, I'm a piece of crap. What am I doing? I should just retire. What was I thinking? Why did I think it was good? Depression so sets in. Yeah, yeah. and you're, you're just slumped in the chair
0: and going, Put me back in quarantine. Yeah, <laughs> and, and every, everybody in L.A. is reading it. All my friends know I'm a terrible writer now. <laughs> you know,
2: all of that's happening. And literally an hour later, a friend called and he said, Did you see today's New York Times? And I go, No. And he goes, They love your movie. So, you know, get in the car, drive to the newsstand, find the mm-hmm. New York Times, read the New York Times review, love the movie. I go, They are such a better paper anyway. <laughs> everybody knows the New York Times is. Cancel
1: looking for a therapist.
2: (laughs) 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 But but what was so wonderful about that in terms of then step outside and have some objectivity is the realization of it's all just somebody's opinion. Mm -hmm. There's not any piece of art ever created in the universe that somebody doesn't love and somebody doesn't hate. It's subjective. Yeah. All of it yeah and so learning how to navigate that, but then being open enough to read stuff and go, "Oh, you know what, They kind of made a good point. Maybe next time I should pay attention to that, or maybe that wasn't as clear as I thought it was. And so it's kind of learning how to get hurt first, you know, get defensive second, and then step out and go, "Is there something I can learn here?"
1: You know, I have these questions for later in the episode, but I'm going to ask them now. Um, I wanted to ask you, this is one of the things is failure, all right? Uh, well. Partly. Yeah. All right. Uh, taking negative reviews, criticism, stuff like that. When you are, you're first starting out, I've, I, I, what I find most people make mistakes getting into the entertainment industry is they don't give it enough time. Like, you need to be available, like you said, but you have to also wait for that right opportunity to get you where you need to go. For you, is was getting that first job at the Herald and then moving on up and getting your screenplay and all that stuff. Uh, Saints cheerleaders. Um, A classic motion. The classic. Picture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think it's told enough where, like, Creators, they, 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 they're really hard on themselves. I think creators are one of the most self-conscious people uh, I've ever met. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> like, uh, like actors are supposed to look beautiful all the time, etc. But they're really concerned about their looks in, in general. Like, what do you find is um, what people? What do you find? What most people don't really expect going into this career, this kind of career choice? Like, is it the failure needing to fail, needing to? create enough bad content to know when a good content comes, like when you're making good content or I about making that clear for you.
2: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. But I, I think it's more about underestimating the amount of work it takes. And mm. so, you know, all of the texts and everything that happened subsequently about the 10,000 hours and, you know, all of those things, I think that's the thing. And, and I, often I'll see it in my students as well. If There's just – I don't know where the disconnect is in terms of understanding how much hard work goes into it and that there's no – path to success without a bunch of failure along the way, and it was one of the questions you sent ahead of time about, you know, how many screenplays have I written versus how many things got made, and I was just looking the other day for something on IMDB, and I think I have like 32 or 34 produced credits on there, but I've written 100 scripts, Mm. and what's interesting now in retrospect, because I'm an old fart, is sometimes, (laughs) you know, somebody will ask for... Do you still have a copy of this or I was wondering about that or I'd like to look at that? And I'll dig through shelves in my office and I'll look at a script and go, what the heck was that? Yeah. And it's scripts I don't even remember writing. And I'll look at the title and go, now, what was it? And then I'll read five pages and go, oh, yeah, that thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, the other part of how we define success and failure is I've been in the same house in Brentwood that you were at for the launch party for 28 years now. And the reason I was able to buy that house was I had a couple of years where I was being hired all the time. Yep. I was writing projects. They weren't getting made,
1: mm-hmm. but, but you're doing, you're I was getting paid
2: to write. And so one of the things that was always a big disconnect with my family and friends in Rochester and college friends and all the rest of it was like, so what do you do? Like we're waiting to see, <laughs> you know, something you tell us you're working on this thing for Spielberg, you're working on Ron Howard's thing, you're doing that and that, but we're not seeing anything. And it's mm-hmm. like... I know, yeah. But you know, the good news is, and the, so that me- metric of is that success or is that failure? Is it, you know, what is it you want out of it? What's your expectation for it? And for me, it was like I'm supporting myself and my family doing something I love.
1: I feel like I'm at your stage where you're explaining right now. We just got bought a new home. It's been the past I don't know, probably ten years since I last saw it. <laughs> like a yeah. it's been constantly working, working, working. We just got our own home. I'm pretty sure I'll be there for 28 years. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's. Uh, But one thing that made me more comfortable and something that you said one day in class actually was you're talking about like you don't remember all the stuff you've written but some people will ask you for a script 10 years later or I think you said even like 20 years later or something like that. I don't remember what project that was but the point is like you don't know what's going to come back up and you don't know how long that's going to take to get up because you have to find the right people uh, the right crew. You have to find the right people to just make that happen.
2: Yeah, 100%. And that's the other thing that I say all the time to students about if you're writing... None of that is a waste of time. Mm. And the difference is, it's two things. I'm somebody who really believes, and still to this day, every time you're writing, you're learning something, you're making new discoveries, you're seeing things in a way that, you know, you're shaping stuff in a way that you couldn't have done five years ago. And sometimes it's life experience, sometimes it's, you know, whatever else you've seen and read in the interim and how the industry is changing. But none of that is a waste of time. And the project you were referring to was a script that I wrote on spec. Uh, For a while, it was in development at Disney on the feature side, and I worked with an executive on that for a while, and then ultimately, they decided not to make it. And most of the time, what happens is you get projects back in turnaround, and turnaround means you've been paid a certain price, but when the contract expires, the material reverts back to you. And that same executive, 10 years later, called and said, I'm now at ABC Family. I remembered your script. We're looking for projects like that. Does anybody currently own it? Did it ever get made? And it's like, no, it's still on my shelf. And she said, dig it out and send it to me. And then ABC Family Dust it made off.
1: it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and it
2: was you know, like you said, ten or
0: twelve years later that it got made. But and, uh, when did, when did it or how long did it take to revert back to you?
2: It, that depends on the individual contract, so okay. how that's negotiated, and that's another thing that the agents work on. Sometimes it's 18 months, sometimes it's two years, that they own the rights to it based on the option they paid, but those are really specifically negotiated. Gotcha. And then the other thing that happens with turnaround is if a studio's already paid you ten thousand dollars to develop it, whoever buys it has to pay them back first off right. the top. It gets the bought, turnaround yeah. fee <laughs> with interest.
1: Yeah.
2: And so the, that's the other tricky thing is I had a couple projects that people were interested in and then when they saw the turnaround cost that had accrued interest and everything else over the time they would go, yeah, yeah, yeah not so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh.
1: But you at least got paid. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> got my house. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> All
0: right. Is it time? Can we get to Land Before Time right now, dude? Just class can, I, your <laughs> can I just do it, man? Can Go I just ahead. can I just Justin fanboy is, a
1: little bit right now? Well, like. I, I'll let the, I want the listeners to know this. So the way this episode got brought about, you know, the team at IH, uh, uh, myself, Justin, our associate producer, we were talking about what we're gonna do for our future episodes, and we're just talking about who we knew, etc. I don't know, I don't know how we got brought. I'm I brought up Stu. I brought up your name. It's like, oh yeah, 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 he wrote Land Before Time, and then like. Justin and Caitlin just kind of stopped. We're like, what? <laughs> so Justin, have at it. All right.
0: So this is how I'm going to start this off. I don't know whether to hug you or smack you across the face because my goodness, man, me and and a generation of people
1: around me. Multiple generations.
0: Yeah, yeah. Multiple generations. Has to be one of the saddest things I have <laughs> ever seen in my life. And I'm serious. Like, I remember I was watching that at an age where I was like, you know, you're a kid. You don't think about your parents dying or anything like that. You know, you're just having fun. And then I see this this
1: littlefoot talking to his mom,
0: <laughs> saying goodbye. And you're like, I'm gonna lose my parents one day.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and you're like A huge reality check this happened to a lot of kids. Yeah. And I remember I watched that movie so many times and I was Damn you, Stu. <laughs> yeah.
2: And if I could say the number of times over the years, now 29 years, that parents have come up to me in the same thing. Yeah. About, you don't know what you did to my kids, You don't know what you did to me. <laughs> but then the flip side of it is my son, Gus Krieger, who's now a writer-director, was – four years old when the movie was made and like five and a half when finally got theatrical distribution and they did the world premiere of it at the Natural History Museum near USC. Oh, no way. And it, yeah, and it was Spielberg and Lucas in the dinosaur exhibit. They screened the movie in the uh, big ass theater yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. And so that was the whole you know world premiere and we were at the premiere and Gus was sitting next to my wife and like I said, he was about four and a half, five years old. And Littlefoot's mom dies and he's sitting there and he was the same kid that used to pull his chair up in front of the TV watching The Wizard of Oz when the witch's big green face would come in the crystal ball and every other kid in the world would be diving under the couch and he'd be like this. So Littlefoot's mom dies at the premiere and Hillary leans over and she goes, isn't it so sad? And Gus went, what? And she said, the mother just died. And he went, I know. (laughs) <laughs> and she said for like two years, she slept with one eye open. <laughs>
1: like, Damn. No. Yeah. So yeah, there is the flip side you know, as well. You see, you're, you're probably like, this is going to be a great writer one day. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Life experience. Yeah. He's just getting all that right now. Yeah. That and is the amazing.
2: First, and the first two movies he did were horror films. So. <laughs> oh, okay.
0: That's so funny. Yep. But I do, I do think like, you know, thinking back on that moment that I had, and I know many other people had too, it's like, It's like what's what is the right age to you know because kids they're not going to be innocent forever. But what what a like I think it was a you know great moment to learn about that death and
1: loss like as as a kid through an amazing movie. You know, It, it was definitely pivotal like even for me. But I gotta say the rest of the writing like the friendships and all that stuff like that movie was it was more than just something sad, man. It was. Beautiful. I, it was I, special. Really, it, was, it was very special. It was encompassing, I think. Well,
2: that's been the most kind of surprising thing to me, just simply because you don't ever have any objectivity about anything you do. And <laughs> kind of the enduring power of that movie is the most extraordinary thing to me. And, and now it's, you know, the kids who grew up on it are showing it to their kids, and and the last time I tracked anything, it was over seventy million worldwide DVDs and cassettes. And little you know.
1: little factoid
2: drop right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I mean, that the scope of it is kind of astonishing, and the endurance of it, and the fact that I've lost track, but they're you know on seventy or eighty sequels at this point, and there was yeah, I don't know, I mean, That was <laughs> one
0: of my questions. Yeah. At, like, does that? Does that like lessen it for for you or does that upset you you. in any way?
2: No, what I did, which again, and, and I am so much about the long game, you know, being able to look forward and kind of see what it is you want to do and what you want your career and your legacy to be. And so for me, what happened is contractually, they were obligated to offer me any initial sequels. And so when they decided they were going to do two and three, I had a meeting at Universal, and they called me in and said, here's our game plan, here's what we're going to be doing, are you interested in writing them for us? And so, you know, the original had its theatrical distribution, it was a success in its theatrical run, it was doing really well on cassettes, at that point it was, you know, still VHS tapes. And they said, so for the sequels, we're going to be doing two and three simultaneously. We're interested in you writing both of them. They're going to be direct-to-video. They're going to be much cheaper than the original. Spielberg and Lucas aren't involved. It's just kind of down-and-dirty universal home video. That's what we're doing. Are you interested? Yeah. And I said, no. And they were like, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, I really want to be the guy who created the franchise and has the you know, template of the feature film with the quality that was in, connected to it and the people that were involved in it, including Don Bluth and his producer, John Pomeroy. And I'm fine to step away and move on to something else. And so when it went on to all the rest of it, and, and it's funny, again, now parents will say, but none of them were as good as the original ones. Like, <laughs> I know. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, And so past number yeah. two, I haven't even seen any of them, but it, it yeah. I got to three, I think.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I skipped three. I think I accidentally saw four. <laughs> like, no, it was just playing at someone's house. I was like, oh, yeah. What do you mean, a fourth one? Like, I was just
2: like, what? Yeah, but, but embracing the legacy and, and, and one of the most, like, again, when you, you have these moments in your life where it's like, this is really my life, it's kind of cool, which was my daughter did her semester abroad in Ghana when she was a college student wow. and she was there for five months and we went to visit and she said, oh, my God, you have to come meet my history professor. She flipped out and she found out. And I walk into this woman's office at the University of Accra in Ghana in Africa and she says to me, when you sat down to write Land Before Time, did you ever think you'd meet a woman in Africa who was a big <laughs> Fan of your movie, <laughs> and my daughter and I have watched it 80 times. And you know, and, and she just said, Could you have imagined? And it's like, No, absolutely yeah. not. You should have said, <laughs> so, Yes, I used to send him headshots of myself, and he <laughs> was going to be there one day.
1: Exactly. No, that's it. It was something all the right people were involved with that movie uh, to just make it as impactful as it was.
2: Yeah, and yeah. it's another great kind of following through on the lessons that we were talking about at the very beginning of both the contacts and relationships and being somebody people want to work with more than once, was that came about in terms of how my involvement happened was uh, I did a pilot for no, it was actually a spec script. It was a spec script called Kinfolk that ultimately never got made, but it was the most important thing I've ever written in my entire career because that – what happened was the first couple things that I did that got produced were kind of low-budget, coming-of-age, you know, teen angst kind of movies, and one was a teen comedy. And I was, again, looking forward ahead enough to realize that writers get typecast as quickly as actors do. Mm-hmm. And so the kind of things I was getting meetings on and people were talking to me about were all these teen coming-of-age, wacky, you know, either comedies or dramas with kids.
0: I never thought about that. But, yeah, you so you get typecast just the same way. You're yeah, pigeonholed into writing the same thing. Yeah, over and, and I have a
2: friend who has been phenomenally successful as a horror writer, and then he wrote a really personal romantic comedy and nobody wanted to read it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I was like,
2: that's not what you do. You do this thing. Yeah. That's what, dance, monkey, know. dance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, you know, realizing that for me, the idea was... I'm going to write something that shows a whole different side of me so that there's something where the agents can take out that isn't about young people. And so what I wrote was my most kind of naked and autobiographical. It was a comedy about four generations of a family coming together for the grandparents' 60th wedding anniversary, but it was all the explosive drama of, you know, a family coming together. And again, one of the great moments of I think I did what I was supposed to do is a wonderful director named Mark Rydell who did On Golden Pond and The Reavers and great movies, his company was interested in the project for a while, and his head of development was an Indian woman. And I walked in, and she said, I don't know how you did this, but this is my family. And I was like, you know, if the Jewish boy from Rochester, New York is making this woman think it's her family on the page, I did something right. An and Indian she, woman said "That's to you? Yeah, and she okay. was someone who grew up in India with, you know, I mean, she's that still wearing a sari
1: on your end, then, by the way, because yeah. it's hard to— it's hard to capture that. Yeah, and
2: and you know, I mean, she was traditional enough with the Sari and the Bindi and the whole smash. And she said, I don't know how you did that, but this is my family. And so.
1: I, 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 I wonder <laughs> why you, I like you so much. There you go. There, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you just so, need to get us yeah. in, the Indian
0: connection. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, the, the, so the thing with Kinfolk and why I said it was such an, a pivotal script is that was the script that the agent sent out that got me so many of the other really important jobs in my life. And even though ultimately it never got made, and this is again about. How the business works to begin with, it didn't get made because it was a multi-generational ensemble comedy, and I would go into these meetings, including at Mark Rydell's company, and people would say, "I love this script. It made me laugh. It made me cry," but I don't know how to market it. There's not a single lead. Who do we focus on? Who are you know? How do we? And It was all these reasons why not to make it that always started with, "I love this script. It made me laugh. It made me cry," and then I would go home and go. Well, you're not that special. If it makes you laugh and cry, there's probably other people you know, that would respond the same way. And then what happened about a year and a half after that, Parenthood got made. And then the excuse was, well, they just made Parenthood. That's a multi-generational story. There's not room for your script. But back to the why it was so important was – That got to incredibly talented television producers, Josh Brand and John Falsey, who had done St. Elsewhere and Northern Exposure and a bunch of great TV. And they read it and really liked it. And they had just been hired to executive produce amazing stories for Steven Spielberg. Mm. And so they hired me to write a project with them that eventually became Year in the Life because they were under contract to Spielberg and couldn't work on something else. And Year in the Life was in development. So they said, if you write the pilot script, we can move forward with it because we're under exclusive contract to him. And then while I was doing that, they showed Stephen the script, and he really responded. And then he hired me to write three episodes of Amazing Stories. And so that was my first entree there. And then in working there, when we were in the second season of Amazing Stories, his head of development came to me, and she said, Stephen and I were talking the other night, and we both think you've become an even better and more kind of dimensional writer since you had kids. And Stephen and George Lucas have always had this idea for an animated dinosaur movie – they need a writer on it. Would you be interested in writing it? And when somebody says to you, Stephen Spielberg yeah, and yeah, George yeah. Lucas, you say yes. You don't ask <laughs> you know, anything else. You just say yes. Oh, I was supposed to get married during that time. Yeah. Oh, well. We'll yeah. just
1: postpone that another yeah. year.
2: You say yes. Yeah. And so what I inherited, which was actually – I wish I still had it, but I think I gave it back to them, was it was literally a manila folder filled with scraps of paper of just ideas they had. And and part of the thing that's so funny about mentioning the dying mother thing is that was a Stephen thing because Bambi had had that same impact on him as a kid.
1: Mm. And so it was
2: like, you know, I survived Bambi's mother dying. We're killing a mom
0: before we're done here. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, th- I think people realize that it's kind of important like yeah. for a child to be – You know, experience those, you know, just those feelings or know that they're out there. Yeah. Reality checks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so
2: what the folder was, it was a bunch of scraps of paper with different ideas. And it would be sometimes on a napkin saying dinosaurs trekking past a burning volcano. And so when I got the folder, it was like, take all this and try to organize it into some kind of coherent story. And so the idea of disparate dinosaurs from different breeds on a journey was sort of what I inherited, and then it was shaping the characters and shaping the story.
0: Okay. But in that folder, there was no um, – this kind of leads into my next question, but there was no like pictures of any of these dinosaurs, like no, no. Art, l- artwork or it's anything just, like that. It's just that. completely no. concept And, and anyway.
2: the other thing that had happened is they had had other writers do a first draft that they weren't happy with, and so I said to them, if you don't mind, I don't want to see that. If, if you're not happy with it, let's start fresh, and let's just – I don't want to be influenced by – I feel like that would be harder to read that, yeah.
0: read somebody else's script, and then be like – Huh. How much should I take, or, yeah. or like, just do your own thing? Right? Yeah, and so <laughs> oh, and okay. fortunately,
2: they were amenable to that, and and it was really, you know, let's just take these scraps of paper that were your original idea and build out from there.
0: Was that was that your first? Uh, uh, no, it wasn't your first animated. That uh... was. Your oh, first yeah. it was your first. Yeah,
2: Troll in Central Park came after.
0: Okay, right. So th- did you find that working on something that was animated was it harder at all? Just. St- to, to come up with the story-wise or... No,
2: the great thing was, and again, it goes back to what I said earlier about I'm a character writer. And so each of those dinosaurs were kids. And it's like, you know, what are the issues kids are grappling with? What are the personalities when you're on the playground? Who are you fighting with? Who's the bully? You know, we had this whole backstory with Sarah of the reason she was so tough and had this facade. was She was the only girl in the pack and she didn't want to be taken advantage of by the boys. And so she had to put on this tough shell to look like she could keep up with them. And so each of them, you know, kind of had a history and a backstory and a here's who they are as, for me, children. But then the great thing with writing for animation, the liberation part of it was it wasn't about budget. You know, So on features, you're always conscious of, we could do this cool thing, but ultimately, are they going to afford it? Am I going to exactly, build a script right. around something, that, a set piece that ultimately has to be cut because it's right. not within the limits? And you know, animating a burning volcano is no different than animating a trek past a flower in a tree. Exactly. And so that was, in some ways, you know, really liberating because it was
1: just imagine it and they can draw it. Mm-hmm. Did you have a follow-up question to that? Because I have one. No, go for it. That... I would guess, just you explaining that, you had to have some products that you've written that haven't been made based on budget. Out of everything that you can remember over the hundreds of scripts, yeah. which one is your favorite that you kind of hope that would one day take off? Well, it's about the
2: sweetest thing I will say all day. But my favorite script that never got made was a project called Those Two Boys. And it was another like little kid coming of age realizing there's a larger bigger world out of there and and kind of the short version of the longer story is it's two little boys that are spying on a woman that they have a crush on she works at the ice cream store and they figured out that every time she bends to scoop the ice cream they can see her cleavage <laughs> and, you know so it's like as many excuses as they can get to go to the ice cream store and then they start following her and spying on her and find out that one of their fathers is having an affair with her. And it's their whole coming of age and realizing, again, there's a bigger, darker world out there and this innocent thing, you know, turns into an awakening. And that's another project that had several iterations, several times that it got really close. At one point, the actor Parker Stevenson was going to direct it and we had the movie entirely cast and budgeted and then... It just fell through. Well, this is, again, you know, be careful what you wish for. It was at the time when he was married to Kirstie Alley and Kirstie was one of the actors in the project that was helping us get our financing and they broke up during pre production, and then when she fell out, two of the other actors that she had brought fell out and it just tumbled backwards. And yeah, that happened very quickly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but But the reason that I love that script, and the thing I was going to say about the sweetness of it, is at some point, Early on, my son, who's now the writer-director, when we when Parker was involved, Gus was actually auditioning to be one of the two boys in those oh, two really? boys. And, and, you know, had done screen tests for him and everything. And then when he started his own career, he said, someday I'm going to get famous enough to make that movie for you. <laughs> I was like, yeah. you go, boy. Go, son, go. Yeah. <laughs> you go, boy. I like that. Um, but, but that, again, was another really important project for me in terms of—and so and, and it dovetails really nicely back to what we were saying about nothing's a waste of time, nothing's right. for naught, because Kinfolk and those two boys were the scripts that got me the most jobs, even though they never got made.
1: I have no doubt something will happen with it. Like, you don't know, but you, you do you know. know. You. But that's the exciting part. Yep. All right. We've actually been recording for quite a while. I don't think you noticed that. <laughs> I know. I've been okay. looking over at the clock, I, and
0: it seems like we just kind of got lost.
1: So in, I, in I recommend deal. that you and I look over these questions that we want to ask Stu and just take like the top two, other than your, your, your favorite question to ask. Uh, I, I just want to make sure before we end this, because I don't know when I'm going to get you on this microphone. <laughs> uh, can you say really quick what makes a good screenplay? Story. Okay. I always thought you'd say characters or something.
0: <laughs> oh, is this rapid fire? No, we <laughs> <laughs> you you rapid, rapid fire. fire. No,
1: I want to make sure. No, because, you know, Stu, like, one, I had you for two quarters, three classes for those uh, two quarters, and I wanted to take your classes because you were teaching us something. You were teaching us actually what to expect in the industry. You're trying to prep us for, like, like it's, it's not going to be easy, but if you want to keep with it, keep at it, keep at it. You don't know exactly. You don't know when things are going to take off, but just keep going at it, so... I wrote these questions down with the expectations of, like, let's see what else. All right, so uh, we were talking about animation, vision, blah, 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 blah. Anything... You got one. Well, yeah. There there's one other
0: question I wanted to ask you about lamb before time. Yeah. I could talk to you about that for like for like a, a two or three hours if I wanted to. But you said that, you know, there's always other people's opinions and uh, involved more so when you're writing a screenplay versus when you're writing a book. Yep. Like, was there anything that you originally had in the movie that they were trying to to take out or do differently than what you wanted to do or
2: Yeah, one of the things that was really interesting and ultimately There are several different cuts of the film, and somebody just contacted me recently and said, you know, there's a dark rumor that there's a whole different version of Land Before Time. Can you confirm or deny? Can
1: you confirm or deny that right Yes, and (laughs) and
2: the answer was, yes, I can, and I have a copy of it. It was like, can we see that? And it's like, no, it's property of Universal Studios, and I have no interest in going to jail. Thank you very much.
0: No, you (laughs) You, do not. I'm going to make a guess right now and say that he ended it with a meteor just to completely (laughs) shatter all of our childhoods. It originally wasn't supposed to be a
1: series. <laughs> no meteor.
2: Uh, but there actually, there is a version where we had done, because th- this was one of the actually great moments in the writing of, it, and, and I ended up writing a full article about it for The Hollywood Reporter right when the movie was being released, because originally Steven's concept was that it was going to be a film with no dialogue, with a musical score similar to Fantasia, but, you know, the same kind of story, but no dialogue, oh, wow. and part of it was they didn't want to... And I can never say the anthropomorphize, you know, whatever, whatever the word of making animals act like people. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to keep them as most majestic and dinosaur-like as they could possibly be. And part of that was as soon as you add language, that goes away. Right. And then when we started storyboarding and started really working it out, it was like, but the audience that you're intending this movie for, we will never be able to hold their attention right. if there's not you know, the character that comes from voice and relationships and all the rest of it. It's not going to work and so we kind of conceded that and what the article for The Hollywood Reporter was called was a dinosaur wouldn't say that because we would have these and, and you have to picture George Lucas most of the time was the voice on the squawk box like Charlie's <laughs> Angels because he was up in you know Skywalker Ranch in Northern California and at the table would be Frank Marshall and Kathy Kennedy Stevens producers and Don Bluth and his producer John Pomeroy and myself and Stephen and you know all of this long conference table and the Amblin, complex and George on the squawk box and we would have these conversations of, you know, well, and and my thing with the language was sort of always going into the dinosaur's perspective. So the whole idea with tree star is, you know, the, what they called the leaves was if they're looking up, what does it look like from underneath looking up? And we would, you know, do these yeah. things as, oh, it kind of looks like a tree star. Yeah. You know, that's of course what it is. And so all of those kind of things of the language would happen. But then we would literally get in these kind of heated fights sometimes of, you know, they should call it this or that. No, a dinosaur wouldn't say that. <laughs> and it's like, wait, do you know what you just <laughs> said? <laughs> you know? A dinosaur wouldn't say that.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Collaborate. There was great, uh, there was great uh, a lot of great language using that, like uh, sharp tooth and. Uh, yeah, and, and just...
2: that, you know, what's similar and interesting is a lot of that, similarly with all of the slang in Xenon, when I was inventing all of that, where that slang came from, all the Cetus Lepidus and the, it's yes. a problem major, and, you know, all of those things came about because, again, I'm always trying to put myself in the perspective of the characters I'm writing about. And so similar to a dinosaur looking up and seeing a tree star, with Xenon, it was, you know, where does contemporary slang come from? Mm -hmm. And then she grew up on the space station. She's in a high-tech environment. So all of her slang would either be from what she sees out the window of the space station with constellations and the stars and the charting and all the rest of it or from tech stuff. And so the whole idea, you know, Cetus is a constellation. So Cetus Lapidus was that. And then, you know, it's a problem major or minor was Ursa major and Ursa minor. And, you know, so it was always like, it's got to have some organic component for me to be able to make sense. And one of the fun things about those three movies was just inventing this whole other, you know, slang of the future.
1: All right, so I got to tell you this story. I was not anticipating to share this. (laughs) uh, But um, Cetus Lapidus, when... The first zine <laughs> was uh, airing on Disney. My cousin, she's five years younger than me. And I was very involved in her childhood. Like, we're very close. So I would be really into the show. And um, she, we would just like, oh, Cetus Lapitas. Like, that's such a crazy thing And she was just like, Cetus Lapitas, Cetus Lapitas. Like, she would just be yelling it out all, of, all the time. And, and it turned into this weekend thing where I'd just say it too, right? Just to like, get her egged on. We kept doing this in front of my older sister, and I don't know what was going on with her that weekend, but she got so irritated (laughs) from us because we just kept saying, Cetus Lapidus, Cetus Lapidus, Cetus Lapidus. It ended up turning into this big sibling-cousin's fight type thing. And at the end of it now, even to this day, my same cousin, we're just like, I don't know, we are like frustrated, like Cetus Lapidus. (laughs) (gasps) See what you
2: did, Stu? No, my favorite related anecdote, Mike, Daughter was in high school when the movie came out, and she went to Pally High in the Palisades. And you know, the beach is literally like three blocks down. And she said, One day after school, a bunch of kids were at the beach, and it was some big, like, you know, football playing jock sitting on the blanket, and somebody kicks in, and he went, Cetus (laughs) Lapidus. And she went, did you just say Cetus Lapidus? And he went, no. And she goes, you so did. And and then she told him that I wrote the movie, and he flipped out. But but she said it was like one of the greatest moments of her childhood, this big jock guy going,
1: Cetus Lapidus. I can imagine you get a lot of hugs (laughs) from
2: strangers. Yeah, and the other thing that's hilarious is somebody at BuzzFeed is obsessed with that movie and Smart House, Really? And again, I only know all of this because I'm not on any social media, but my students <laughs> are constantly sending me, dude, did you see this today? And there's, you know, 10 things that Xenon got right about the future, the Xenon slang, The pre- it's just, wow. I would say every three or four weeks, there's another BuzzFeed thing that's somehow either connected to Xenon or Smart House.
1: I'm trying to make the premise of Smart House happening at my home right now. I'm trying to like, LX is everywhere, <laughs> like, like, the, but need, I like, need a holographic thing going on.
2: As long as you don't mind the fact she's spying on you. Yeah, of
1: of course. I mean, okay. I mean Jeff sure Bezos is. is definitely looking at my house right now. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> the, uh,
0: the bathrooms at your house are a little bit disconcerting. Like, hey, uh, bro. <laughs> we'll, we'll, <laughs>
1: I'm getting there. <laughs> Full service. So I think we should wind down, Justin. Yeah. I think you should ask the question that you normally ask. Uh, sure. Yeah, it's, it's the last one listed on our agenda. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so what has been,
0: for you just as a writer, what's been your favorite part? about that profession and what what has been one of the hardest parts for you or or one of the parts that is that you don't quite dig as much as, you know, the writing itself.
2: You know what's interesting? I feel again incredibly fortunate with that I am a writer who loves to write. And the number of times during my career when I would be in meetings or be with friends or I was in a writers poker gr- game for years and there's so many writers that would always say it's torture for me. Every single day when I have to sit down, it's absolute torture. It's a means to an end. A lot of my friends were writing so they could eventually direct, which is something I knew I never wanted to do. I don't have a director's eye or temperament. But I really, truly love the act of writing. And there were many days where I always say, and you probably heard this in class, of the best days were when I would sit down at 9.30 and look up, and it was 12 o'clock, and it was like, where have I been? Yeah. you know, And just completely and totally lost in the work. And so, you know... The hardest part and the heartbreak part of it is So much of it is completely out of your control and so you know projects that you pour your heart and soul into and don't get made for various reasons and Mm -hmm. kind of the first real real cherry popping heartbreak was a project that i was so invested in and involved in and passionate about and amy heckerling was attached to direct and stuart kornfeld who was mel brooks and now ben stiller's producing partner was going to produce it and we loved each other and had so much fun and when ultimately it fell apart it was because there was a feud between the head of the studio and our executive producer and It had nothing to do with the project. It had nothing to do with the material. It was Some petty
0: thing that just stopped the whole project from moving forward. And
2: part of the pettiness was they weren't going to give it back to us in turnaround either. It was screw you, we're keeping it, and you can't make it, and you're done. Mm. And kind of learning how to navigate that and learning how to have that, like I said, a lot of yoga, a lot of meditation, a lot (laughs) of separate, that stuff was always really hard, And, and it never got easier in terms of I can do my best work and it doesn't always matter. It's not always enough. And then the other thing about, you know, especially once I had kids and a mortgage and all the rest of it, the freelance life is you never know when you're going to get paid even when you're supposed to get paid. Oh, yeah. You know, so it was always navigating that. Of I know Disney owes me $50,000, but they're not paying and I can't call the college and go, you don't mind, they're not paying me yet. You know, I mean, so that was very stressful. A lot of planning involved in that. Yeah. 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 And, and again, you know, I, I was fairly fortunate that knowing that and realizing that I was always pretty good with a budget and pretty good with saying, you know, and, and, and I think it's one of the reasons both my kids have such a good work ethic because we were always very upfront about, you know, yes, we were in Hawaii last summer. We can't afford it right now. We're not going. Tough it out, kids. You'll be OK. You know, and just really being very realistic about the
0: vagaries of the freelance life. Right. Mm hmm. Well man, thank you so much for coming by. I really appreciate it. It's um, been a pleasure. This uh, I, I enjoyed
1: your book. Uh, that one it was that, that one, one cigarette. cigarette. Yeah. Available on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone please check it out. Purchase that. Yeah, I, I Kindle I, version I, or hardcover or paperback. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> it's funny, I quit smoking like Three weeks before reading that, <laughs> and you describing in detail a person inhaling that puff of smoke <laughs> and how satisfying it is, I was in a little bit of agony during those um, times. I've tortured
2: you again. Huh? <laughs> it's clearly I'm... my job to just torture you. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, in, in, in
0: every single thing you do. No, but seriously, thank you so much for coming by and taking the time.
1: Really means a lot to us. Yeah, yeah no,
2: very enjoyable, and appreciate you guys for the great questions.
1: Stu Krieger, ladies and gentlemen. Stu be dooby doo. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Stu, if you're listening to this, which I'm sure you are, uh, thank you so much for being on our episode again, because that was informative. That was helpful. And uh, a lot of the stuff he talked he talked about when I was in class, and I'm sure he tells all that stuff to his students. But I'm glad I got the I was able, Being in this setting, you have a professor, it's like better than lab hours. It's like, all right. Let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question, and I'm not getting graded for it.
0: <laughs> you don't even need to pay attention, <laughs> yeah.
1: which I didn't. No, I'm just kidding. It was awesome, man. That guy's he's lived a great life, a uh, great family, and and again, of
0: course, I'm fawning, but like he wrote like the best, <laughs> one of the best childhood movies that I remember the most, and saddest yes <laughs> and saddest up next to the, the only other thing I can think that might be sadder than that moment is uh you remember a never ending
1: story yeah. when he's trying to pull his horse out of the no! swamps of sadness dude okay I'm gonna top you right now up first 10 minutes of up yeah it's pretty pretty brutal. I was like this is a family movie Stu didn't write that one, but still, he knows what's going on with that. Um, Anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode, and for any aspiring writers out there or current writers, uh, you know, hustling out there, um, I hope he gave you some guidance, uh, a template. I know sometimes, you know, based off when he was starting out, it's different, obviously, but a lot of those principles are definitely the same. Um, Just keep at it. Keep at it, and you don't know how long things take. You know, just keep it. it, Nothing's wasted time, and I can't uh, agree with him more on that. So just from my own personal experience. So uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of The Interesting Hour. Um, again, this is brought to you by Core Foundation uh, Oh, you know, and Bad Idea, obviously Yeah, Those guys are awesome They, they let us use their space So, uh, yeah, first of all, Bad Idea, check them out Bad Idea Films uh, There's some of their movies on Netflix So go take a look at that And also, obviously, Core Foundation Core Foundation is a multimedia nonprofit Check us out at cor-foundation.org Take care, guys, until next week Peace bye